Um, as she said, my name is Tom. I'm our teaching pastor here at Life Community. Really glad that you're with us. And um, we're, uh, we're at the beginning of a, a series that we're, we're, we've started um, called In the Company of Kings, where we're looking at um, the move in the, the people of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, the move from, from a time of what was called the judges to, to a time of a monarchy where there were, there were kings that actually ruled over the people. And, um, and it's recorded in the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, last week, we took a look backwards at, at some things, but today we're actually going to get into the, the text of First Samuel. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to First Samuel chapter 1, that's where we're going to be here um, uh, for, for our morning, chapters 1 and 2. Um, but I want to ask, just start with, um, <clears throat> with a question, is why is it so hard to keep promises? Do you have, do you have promises? Think, think back to like... Promises that you've made, maybe, maybe some big ones, but, but think about even just like small ones that, that we'll make that, that we may not keep, okay? Um, and don't look at me with that judgment. I know you do it. I do it, right? But, but things like, you know, I'll send that to you this week. I'll get that to you. Um, things like, I'll be there at 8, or I'll be home by 10, right? Um, Perhaps it's, it's more like, um, you know, maybe daddy says he'll play a game later. I've never broken that one. Um, I'll fill up the gas tank. Sure, I'll do that. Um, yeah, I'll call mom today. I'm sorry, mom. She does watch these. I'm sorry. I will call you, okay? I'm gonna call, I'll call you. Mom, I'll call you this weekend, okay? But we, we have a tendency to, to say things, and in the moment, we probably, and I'm going to assume, we want them to be true, but we also, as people, have a tendency to not follow through on them. Um, it's even with good intentions, even with good intentions, keeping promises can be really hard. It can be really hard. This is the last time I'm going to spend that money, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that habit out of my life. Like, if I, can just, if I can just get through this thing, then I'm not going to indulge in those patterns anymore that have kept me from being healthy. It can be hard to keep our promises. Um, it's one reason why, like, when someone makes a big promise and then follows through and keeps that promise, it's one reason we, like, write books about it. And those books get made into movies because it, it's kind of rare. It's kind of rare that someone really says... You know, I'm going all in. I'm pushing all the chips to the center of the table on this promise that I'm making you. And no matter what cost, I'm going to keep that promise. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow through. And we're going to look today in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 at a promise that's kept and the impact that it makes. And um, to, just to center this again, in this series, this, this Company of Kings series, we're looking at the books of First and Second Samuel. It covers about 100 years of the history of the Jewish people, God's, God's people here in, in Palestine and Israel. And it, it covers really three sort of main characters. Samuel, the one the book is named after, though he didn't write it. Um, he's dead before it's finished. Samuel, it begins with his birth, as we'll see today, and moves forward into Saul as a king and David as a king. And last week, we actually looked at the, the 400-year, roughly, period prior to this, okay, the period of Judges, where there, there was no king. And in, in the book of Judges, it says repeatedly, there was no king in the land. And, and because there was no king, at least the, the author of Judges is attributing this to that, that factor, because there was no king, the people did what they thought was right. It says they did what was right in their own eyes. 
And, and they, they had a, a cycle or a pattern that they were in where they would drift away from God and God's punishment would come in, but then they would repent and cry out to God for forgiveness and he would deliver them. And this happened over and over and over again. In the book of Judges, it happened 12 times and we'll see even Eli that will be mentioned here at the beginning of the book, book of 1 Samuel is a 13th judge that's in there and Samuel might even be considered a 14th, but this cycle of Judges where the, the people drift and, and, and that those rings represent 400 years of history roughly, for the, for the children of Israel. And it starts with just sort of like they didn't, a half obedience. They, they went part way to where God told them to go. They were, he, he had delivered them, brought them into the land, and they, they kind of half obeyed something. It was, it was a hard ask. God had given them something difficult to do to drive out the, the inhabitants of the land. But, but they, they kind of got to a place where they, they felt like they'd driven out enough to live peacefully. And so they kind of stopped, and they had a half obedience, and, and, and they, they drift away from God, and they cry out. And what happens is they start to adopt the foreign gods. This is the reason God told them, you have to drive the people out of the land. You have to clear the land, because if, if, the, if those other things, if those other people are left in the land, it's going to corrupt your worship of me, the one true God. And it did. That's exactly what happened. The foreign gods, they started to mix them together with their, their worship of Yahweh, the true God. And, and so they, they adopt the religions of the land over time, and, and, and down the road they adopt, do even more, and they set up, they, they set up more temples for them, and they, they begin to, to engage in the practices that were common with the pagan gods, including um, the sacrifice of humans and, and temple prostitution and all kinds of things recorded in the book of Judges. But after 400 years, the book of Judges ends with a civil war. The, the spiral just goes down and down and down over 400 years until it starts with a half obedience, but it doesn't, no, no one ever stays half obedient, right? If we're half obedient, we're half disobedient. And what starts to happen is that greater and greater disobedience takes over. And it's, it was true for them, and it's true for us. We get in these patterns, and we get comfortable with the pattern. We may throw our hands up and say it's just the way that it is and there's not much we can do about it. But we're going to start today with, with the story of the birth of Samuel because Samuel is, is a pattern breaker, okay? And it, it starts with, uh, with the story of his mother. You, if you've got your Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to read the, the first chapter and then a little bit of the second in, in a little while, but we're going to start at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and um, quick prayer on some of these names. I'm going to do my best, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, there was a certain man of, Re <laughs> Very, I couldn't get the first one out of my mouth, Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jer Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Got it. Maybe. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, 
he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. I want to pause here, okay, and set this up. Sometimes we see a list of names like that and some funny names and names that we don't really connect with much anymore. It's easy for us to, to sort of say, people long ago, people in other places, different world, different problems, okay? But what this sets up for us very plainly is that these are real people, and this is a real place, and there's a situation here that is less than ideal, and it's complicated, right? It's complicated. The story is going to focus on Hannah in this, in, in this account in chapter 1. It's going to focus on her, and it, it sets up her situation she has a husband, but her husband has another wife as well. This is a common practice in the ancient world, and the book of, uh, of 1 Samuel here is not trying to justify it and say that it's okay. In fact, what it's saying is that the fact that, that this man had two wives created hostility and tension and antagonism in his house, right? And, and he didn't treat them fairly, and how could he, right? But we find this woman, Hannah, and she's in a story that, that, it, that is full of brokenness. It says that, that the Lord had closed her womb. And I have to be direct and forthright this morning and say, I'm not really sure what, that all, what all that means. We'll see more to the story as we go through that's going to tell us that that's not the end of her story. But at present, when we meet Hannah, she was unable to have children. And in the ancient world, we're talking now roughly 1,000 years before Christ, so about 3,000 years ago, in the ancient world, this, the ability for a wife to, have, to bear children and particularly to have sons, it was her value. It's where her value was found. And again, that's not to endorse it as the way things ought to be. It's a statement of the way things were, that the value of a woman was her attachment to a man and then, in that attachment to that man, her ability to bear children for him. And we find Hannah, who not only can she not do that, but her husband, who it says he loved her enough that he was giving a double portion to her. But he'd taken a second wife, and that second wife antagonized her in her weakness. Right? Think about the thing that you carry that is most painful for you. It hurts the most. Most likely because it's true. The things that aren't true about us, that, that, that people say about us or that we're confronted with, oftentimes they, we can sort of move past those because they're not true of us. Think about the thing that is true. The thing that when you look at yourself, it causes you to feel the greatest level of shame or hurt. And now imagine that on a daily basis, there's someone in your life who has that thing, and, and you're in a competitive environment with them, and they are constantly irritating you about it. This is the pain that Hannah's experiencing, and it's real. Okay? Real people, real place, real situation. Keep reading with me. Verse 7, so it, went, so it went on year by year. 
As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. This is Peninnah, the wife with children, would provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Okay? Out of her pain, and here it is again, right? She's, She's weeping in her pain. It's real. And out of her pain, she makes a vow. She makes a vow. She promises something, right? She promises a vow that if if God will give her a son, she will in turn give that son back to him. Okay? Now again, it's a nice Bible story. Okay? And it's very easy to sort of trivialize it and to try to make it simple, to to try to make it a thing that was for someone else in some other place. But remember, remember, Hannah is... In many ways, she's just one of us. She's just a wife. And I don't mean just to minimize the role. I mean just like, just as us. She's a wife. And she wants something deeply in her life. And that that want has touched off a, a, a sincere and profound and poignant pain because she doesn't have it. And she's weeping, and her loving, helpful husband comes along and says, Am I not enough for you? We say the best things, right? We know exactly how to fix every situation. And then she says something that, again, I think many of us can connect with this at the level of the idea, right? God, if you would just give me this thing, this thing that touches at the the depth of my pain, at the depth of my hurt, this thing that the the world around me tells me defines me. And at the moment, at present, I feel the same. I feel that it does. It's, It's at the core of who I am. Oh, God, if you would give me that thing, I'll do everything you want with it. Does that sound familiar to you in any way? Have you prayed some version of that? God, if you'll just, if you'll just give me this thing that touches my pain, I'll give it back to you. Now, it does for me. It connects to areas where, where I, I feel that same sense. I feel it with, with children. God, if you, if you would give me children. Before that, God, if you will give me a spouse, I will never do anything to ruin that relationship, to harm that relationship. And yet, day after day, I do all kinds of things to harm those relationships. My selfishness gets in the way. We make the vow. It's keeping the vow. Keep reading. Verse 12. As she continued, to pr- continued praying before the Lord, Eli, who was the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart 
Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to, to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And he said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she said, Sorry, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She's in prayer. And this is just a side, there's so much in this. There's just a bit of sidebar on this. Eli mistakes her prayer for inebriation. He thought she was drunk. And we, we hear that, and, but, but there's an idea in this that, that how often, and, and I'm going to have to touch this and walk away um, just for time's sake, but how often do we see sincere, authentic devotion to God confused with craziness, right? How often do we see someone who's really crying out to God, who really has a sincerity of heart, who really is moving it deeper and deeper into what God has for them, and we say, well, that's crazy. I do it all the time, right? Don't do, you, can't, you can't take that step. That's too extreme. That's absurd. That's crazy. You must be out of your mind to do that. We do it all the time. Like I said, I'm going to have to say that and walk away because we have to keep moving through this story, right? But, but, so, but that, that happens. That's Eli's response to this. And then, but then in the midst of the conversation, Eli understands he connects with her pain. When he, when he sees that she's lucid, when he sees that, that she's in her right mind, he connects with the pain and he understands where it's coming from. And I have to tell you this, because Eli then speaks up and he says, God, is, God grant your petition. I don't read it, and there's, there's many ways that different people will see this. I don't read this as, a, as Eli making a promise on God's behalf, but I do see it as Eli saying, this is sincere. I don't know that Eli had the power to grant her, her, her request. But I do believe that what we experience here with Eli is that he sees her and he enters into the midst of her pain and he connects with her and says, this is sincere and, and God grant this. Like he's praying almost alongside her. And there's a lot that we don't know here, okay? Because it's very easy for us to read into this and to read into it in certain areas that, that it, it's really, I don't think it's necessarily talking about, Okay? It would be easy to read into this and see what's about to happen next and assume certain things to be true. But there's some things we don't know. The first is this. We don't know how often Hannah was praying this prayer. It doesn't tell us. It gives us this account. We don't know how many others around her were praying the same sort of prayer and their story is not recorded. We don't know how their story ends. We don't know. We're going to see what happens with Hannah, but we don't know what would have happened if Eli never crossed her path, if, if she was never granted an answer to this prayer. We don't know. My point in this is to say this. We ought not to read this story as a formula from God. Okay, can I say that here? This story here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is not about she wanted something so bad that she prayed it and somehow God was obligated to give it to her. And so if you want something bad and you pray hard enough, God's obligated to give it to you as well. It's not, it's, we don't know that. 
okay? I'm just going to say it strong. That doesn't mean that she's doing the wrong thing at all. She's going to the right place. She's taking it directly to the source. She's going to God himself with her desire. We just don't know what would have happened if the story ended differently. It's describing what she did and how it worked out. It's not telling us that if you just say it, God is somehow obligated to give it. And I think we need to be careful when we take this and make it about that, okay? Verse 19, so she's prayed and and Eli says, God's heard your prayer. Verse 19, so they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, that is slang for, they were together in the marital sense. Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The word, the word Samuel in Hebrew sounds like um, that, that you've been heard by God. And it, um, that, uh, that was, she said, verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. I, again, there's so much we don't know here, right? Hannah, so, so Elkanah is taking the child, uh, he's taking his family up to, to make their sacrifices. He's going to church, okay? And Hannah, we can, we can read into it, we don't know this for sure, but Hannah says, I'm not, I'm not ready to go. I'm not ready to go. I'm here with the child, and, and he's, he's nursing. And, and when we get past that, then I'm going to go. Now, how many times, okay, how many times do you and I make a vow to God? God, I'm committed to this. I'm going to do this, okay? And then the time comes, and there's an opportunity for us to do it. And we say, yeah, 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 I'm going to do that, but first I'm going to take care of this, Okay? Now, there's practical reasons for Hannah not to take him. It, it would be kind of a burden on Eli and, and those there in Shiloh if she took him and dropped him off when he's still nursing. Okay? But, but in, the, in the story, in the narrative, she's, she's walking through a period of time where this is where the vow that she made becomes decided. Is she going to keep it? Is she going to keep the vow? So keep reading, verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. Those are, those are all extravagant gifts to give in the temple. And she, she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Um, best guesses would be uh, under five years old, two to four years old. <clears throat> and the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord, to Yahweh. For this child I prayed... And the Lord has granted me my petition, <clears throat> my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. Even that word is strange. I've lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And he, being Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. Okay? So Hannah, at, at the end of the story, Hannah, Hannah makes a vow, and she actually takes Samuel to the temple, and she drops him off there. And she says, he's, he's yours now. Okay? He's yours now. And he's, he's young. He's probably still in the cute phase, though I like to imagine him as three years old at this time. 
and Hannah is ready for him to be someone else's problem, perhaps, <laughs> maybe, okay? But she takes him there, and she hands him over. Now, this is, again, it's easy to trivialize this, and it stands out because of how rare it is, right? How often do we say, oh God, if you do this thing, if you give me this thing, I'll give it back to you. If you give me that raise, I will give you more. If you do this thing in my life and give me this new job, I'll use it for your purposes. If, we, if you can give us that new house, we will use it to host all kinds of Christian gatherings, cell groups, and whatever you want. Just give me the thing. But when it comes time to actually doing it, do we drop the child off? Do we say, God, our child is yours, and then follow through on that? Now, I want to make, we're going to continue with this and say more, but I want to just make a couple observations right now. The first thing is this, because we, this whole thing, the, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, it, it starts with the breaking of the cycle of the judges. It's why we started there. The people are drifting. They're drifting, and, and punishment is coming, okay? Punishment is coming. They need to cry out. But here we are at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and, and this is the beginning of the breaking of the cycle. And, and, and God uses what the world considers broken. The world, in Hannah's world that she lived in would have said that she's broken, that, that, that her barrenness was a form of brokenness. Oh, but God says, wait a minute. This is exactly who I'm ready to use. This is exactly who I'm ready to work through. And, and by the way, don't neglect the fact that God is using a woman. He's using a woman. That, that women are, are critical and crucial to his plan. And he moves through them and speaks through them and he does it here. And Hannah bears this child. And the child is going to be the one that God uses in this period of time to bring an end to this end to this cycle that seemed like it was just destined to go on and on forever. But without children, Hannah was considered broken. But what God does is he produces life from that. God takes the things that our world says are broken, that are lifeless, and he brings life from them. It's what he's doing here in the story. He brings hope where hope seemed lost. Do you see where Hannah was? She was in the temple crying out, begging to God for, for some way, like, God, end this for me, please. I've reached the bottom. And it's there that God meets her, and it's there that the hope comes out. This is what God does. This is where he is. You see, we try, when we try to manufacture and manipulate and control and to get these things on our own, to try to move forward, this is why we say we don't know what, what would have happened if, Hannah, if God hadn't granted Hannah's request. We don't know how this would have ended. We only know what God did here. And God chose her. Did he choose her because in his wisdom and in his knowledge, he knew she would keep the vow? I don't know, maybe. I don't know, we don't, but we, to, to say that for sure is to read into this too far. What we know 
is that God took what the world considered to be broken and he used it. And for us, do we consider ourselves to be too weak, too far gone? My past, there's too many mistakes. God can't use me. I'm too flawed. If, if people knew the, the, the depths to which I've gone or to the depth to which I am, I'd be worthless to God. But you see, God's pattern is so different from ours. His pattern is that he actually takes the people and things that are at their, at their worst, at their, where the world would say there's no hope here. And that's the very moment that he injects hope into the situation and says this is where God begins his work. So you and I this morning, can we, can we reckon with this? Can we deal with this? That, that it's not our abilities, it's not our capacity that God is going to work through. God works through weakness. He works through brokenness. And we see that in Hannah's story. The second thing we see here is that our prayers demand action. They demand action. What is it that you want to see God do? What is it that you want to see God do? And then the the next question is, how will God's movement, if God does it, what's that going to require on our part in faith? In order for Hannah to follow through with what she did, she had to take her young child to the temple or to the, to the tent of meeting in Shiloh where the priests were offering sacrifices and hand him over and trust by faith that God was going to care for him better than she could, that his outcome in this was going to be better than what she could provide under her wing. And so be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful the things that we believe are God-endorsed requests in our life. Because God may actually give you the thing that you ask for. And in so doing, it may demand something from us by faith, a step of obedient faith that says, God, because of this, I'm now, I'm now committed to relying on you in this way. And Hannah did it. She followed through. It's why her story is so fascinating. I've stood here and dedicated my four children. I've prayed that God would take them where he leads and that I'd be willing to let him lead them wherever. And it doesn't take 24 hours and I'm back to trying to manipulate and control them. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't take me, it takes no time at all for me to begin to set my plan in action in their life. Hannah handed the child over. When we say, God, this is yours, do we mean it? We need to read a little bit more, and we're going to skip down. Hannah, in chapter 2, you still have your Bible open? In chapter 2, 
Hannah prays a prayer of thanks to God when she brings Samuel into, um, into the Lord's service. And then in verse 12, it gives us a little different twist on this. Verse 12, it, it gives a, an interlude story, an interjected story. Verse 12, it says this, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> I guess if you're an author of the Scriptures, you get to say things like that. I only get to think them. And I don't think that they're, that they're inspired by God when I do. But it says, The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. You got the picture? Three-pronged fork. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So catch this. Their people are bringing their sacrifices, they're cooking the meat, and the priest comes along with his fork, and he sticks it in their pot and pulls it out, and whatever's on his fork is his. Okay? This would be like, okay? let me give you a modern-day equivalent. This would be like one of us from the church standing at the back as, as people give, make their offerings with our hand out, and everything that fell in our hand was ours, and everything that fell past it and went into the offering box, that went into the church's general budget. Follow this? That's what they're doing. It may say it was their custom. It was not right. They were worthless men. All right. Verse 15, moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat to the priest for, uh, for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. This was now, he's, now he's saying, it's not enough that I get like a hamburger, I want the filet, okay? And if, if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Keep reading, verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men, this is Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, right? That's exactly what they were doing. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. It was um, um, the, a basic garment with no, um, it, it, it's in contrast because the linen ephod was simply a basic, it was essentially, he's essentially wearing like his undershirt. Like he's, he's as non-formal, as non-dressed up as he can be in contrast to Phineas and Hophni, who are taking the best for themselves so that they can have. Verse 19, And his mother used to make for him a little, a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Verse 21 catches, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Hannah continues to love and care for Samuel, and, the, 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 and God has, has made a, a drastic, dramatic change in her circumstance. And again, this is where I say, if it's not a formula before that we can pray and it just happens, understand it's, not, it's no more a formula now. It's telling us what did happen for Hannah. It's not guaranteeing that if I come and I give my offering, God is going to make me wealthy. Okay? This is Hannah's story. Keep reading with me. Verse 23. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. They're taking the choices fat, and now it's going to add to it. Uh, all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This also is euphemism. They were sleeping with the, with the women. 
And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all these people. No, my sons, it is, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? For they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. If you catch that last verse, it should sound familiar to us if we think about our New Testament. The book of Luke uses a very similar phrasing to talk about Jesus, that he grew in stature. But there's a contrast that's at work here. The things that Hophni and Phinehas were doing were wrong, and they were wrong in a, in a special way, because they were wrong in a special way because they were specifically taking from what was God's. And that's in direct contrast, that's in direct contrast to what Hannah and Samuel, we, we find with them, where they have nothing for themselves. They have nothing for themselves. Now, again, if, it, if it's not a, if it's not a, a, a textbook on, on Hannah's prayer, this isn't really even a textbook on Eli's parenting. We don't know enough about everything that came before this. We simply know what we, the situation we find ourselves in. But there is a, 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 a clear contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli, that Samuel is, is serving there, and he's serving in simplicity, and he's serving in want and need, and, and these men are, are taking everything they can for themselves. And there's a clear principle to this. These guys were committed to themselves. But what Hannah had passed down to Samuel was that everything was committed to God. Samuel's entire life was God's. Everything that he had and was doing was God's. It's not to say that he was sinless and perfect. But that he had committed everything to God. And, and if we take the whole story, if we take the whole story, this begins with a mother and her prayer. And, and, and it's a prayer that she makes before she even knows that she's going to have a child. In fact, she had every reason to believe that she wouldn't have one. But she commits him to God. God, I'm going to commit this to you. And in some ways, if we're just honest about it, in some ways, that's the easy part. The words are the easy part. But actually keeping that commitment is the hard part. It's the hard part. And I want to, because this deals with this, I want to just wrap up with a thought. You see, the story is about, is about parents and kids, Okay? But the story could be about anything. It could be about you and your, me and my job. It could be about me and my friends. It could be about me and my spouse. It could be about me and a hobby or a favorite sports team that I'm so connected to. It could be about me and just about anything. Do you have something you can put on that line? Something that matters to you in a way that, that Hannah, having a child mattered to Hannah? That it occupies you, it dominates you. It's something that you so badly want and maybe don't have it present. Or maybe it's something that you can remember wanting so badly, and now God's seen fit for you to have it. Right? But the story is about Hannah and her child, and the sons of Eli. And so it makes sense here to say this. And there's a, a, what I believe to be a really fair question in this. 
It's not a textbook necessarily on how to parent, but it is a principle that's important for us that applies here with parenting, with marriage, with work, with, with our income, with whatever it is. Is there room enough in that relationship for God? Or does whatever it is that I want, whatever it is that I'm after, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm saying I'm committed to God, have I squeezed in so tightly with it that God can't get in there? Is it possible that these things that I believe in life are mine, the things that, that if I'm thinking rightly, they're gifts from God that he's given to me, and now I'm trying to hold on to them in a way that doesn't leave room for God to take them and move with them in ways that he's intending. We use this image around here of a relational triangle from time to time, and it's a good image. And essentially what we're trying to say with this is that, that I have a relationship with God and, and my kids are, have a relationship with God and then we have a relationship with each other, but those things are, ought to be rightly placed. The most important thing in my life ought not to be my child. I know in our culture it sounds wrong to say it, right? But it ought not to be my relationship with my child. Someone this week in our teaching team, or uh, uh, sorry, we could go back, said something very profound. They said, it's not about me and my kids and our relationship. It's about me and my relationship with God. And it's about my kids and their relationship with God. That's what it's really about. Okay? But we have all kinds of ways that we, we screw this up and contort this, right? The simplest way is that I like to put me on top, and if God can find a way to work within this, great. And if my kids happen to have a relationship with him, even better. But it's also possible to flip this the other way, right? Where I say, no, 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 I'm going to hold my kids in such high regard, or again, put whatever it is there for you. I'm going to put them in such high regard that I'm going I'm to put myself in a place where I serve them. That's not, that's not the design of God either. But perhaps the worst, right, is that I may put my child again or my job or any of those things, I may put it at the top of the pile and say, boy, I, I hope God can work there. I'm going to try and connect with God. But in the end, it's all about them. And so while I may have been young and made certain commitments Things have changed for me now. While I may have had the best of intention when I said it, I'm going to choose now to walk by, by the grip of my hands, to hold on to it tightly rather than to, to let them go and let God have it. You see, it's great to commit everything to God. It really is. But we've got to keep that commitment. We have to, but that's, that's where faith and action are married. Is when we actually follow through and do. I, I don't want to, to, to close here, I don't want to bait and switch. I don't want to try and convince you of something that just isn't true. That that somehow life with God is going to be easy for us in a way that it doesn't cost us something. You see, the gift of God's grace is totally free. I can't, 
I have to receive it from him because there's nothing I could do to earn it. But life with him is going to touch every area of my being. He's going to get, God is going to get his hands on every aspect of my life. Even things that I feel like I'm, I'm capable of handling or I'm responsible for them. And he's, he's speaking and saying, but really it's mine. And when you committed to me, you may not have known this, God says. You may not have known this when you committed to me, but you were kind of committing the whole thing. So if we're going to do this thing with God, and we're going to do this together, it's going to take surrender in areas of our life. It's going to take bringing our kids to the temple and saying to God, they're yours. Or our jobs. Or our friends. And not just in word. Man, it would be so much easier if it was just about what we said. But it's promises and commitments that we need to keep. Would you pray with me? God, I um, I am sorry because I have promised way more than I've kept with you. And I ask this morning that that the things that we see in your scripture would be really true for me that and for us, that, um, that you do use our brokenness. That when we are in, in touch with the ways that, um, the ways that we are inadequate, that that's right in the place where you can step in in your power and to make all things new and to break the patterns and to, to build new ones that reflect your goodness and your grace. And God, we, we know that you are a loving and gracious God, and we couldn't even offer ourselves to you if it wasn't for your grace. And now, God, we ask that you'd build our faith. Would you, would you help us as we are weak? Would you help us as we We admit and confess the ways that we're um, we're people who just we still think that we've got it. We still think that we can carry it. Thanks for giving it, and now we've got it. God, would you would you help us be people who our prayers become flesh? And God, we, we pray all of this because of who you are and because you kept the greatest commitment in your son. And we thank you for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.